Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Danny Bessner, and we are very pleased to be joined uh, this week by Helen Benedict, an author, novelist, professor at Columbia School of Journalism. She is the co-author uh, with Ayad Awadounen of Map of Hope and Sorrow, Re- Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. Uh, Helen, thank you so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. So this is an issue that obviously is roiled to international affairs for several years now, uh, the, the issue of uh, refugees uh, specifically uh, trying to enter Europe, being stuck in uh, Turkey in, in many cases, but also kind of making their way into Greece and being stuck in some uh, uh, truly inhumane conditions in, in the camps there. I wonder... Uh, what was the sort of genesis of this project for you? What what drew your interest to this topic? Uh, and how did this specific uh, format where you, you kind of went into these camps and uh, spoke with people who had made the journey, how did that come to be? Well, I've been following what, what's been happening with refugees for quite ever, really ever since we invaded Iraq. And I was writing several books about the Iraq war and <clears throat> the and Iraq, Iraqi refugees and, you know, how how we had displaced our war, our invasion had displaced so many of them. Uh, Indeed, our war on terror in general has displaced 37 million people. So I realized that once the Syrian civil war started, that a lot of Iraqis were going to be double refugees because many of them had fled to Damascus and elsewhere in Syria from, you know, to escape the war in Iraq only to have to flee again. So I initially went to Greece to see if I could find some Iraqis who were double refugees, so to speak. And I chose to go to the island of Samos uh, because everybody else was going to Lesbos and a lot of people had written about Lesbos and the famous Moria camp there, which is so awful. But um, even though Samos was smaller, I knew that it was equally dreadful, but nobody was paying attention to it. Samos is also really close to Turkey. It's actually the narrowest strait between them is only one and a half kilometers, so you could swim it. That's how close it is. So it's a very natural entry point for anybody fleeing from the Middle East or Africa who goes through Iran and then through Turkey to try and get to Europe. Um, And as a result, the EU made a deal in 2016, right after Trump was elected, uh, with Turkey and Greece to essentially trap refugees in Greece and Turkey to prevent them coming into Western Europe. And this, it was this trap that interested me so much and that I witnessed when I went to the camps there. Now, how did the, the, this specific project come to pass then? And you, you spoke to people in the camps, you and uh, Ayad, I, ga- I gather, uh, kind of met around this time. What was the sort of um, decision to frame it in this way as a, as a collection of, uh, of stories of individual refugees rather than a, a, a more kind of overall look at the problem? Yeah. Well, I originally went, in fact, to work on a novel. <clears throat> I was going to set a novel in the camp there. So I didn't go as a journalist, which helped, because that's how I got permission to get inside the camp, because journalists were not allowed in the camp in Samos. But I promised not to write about it as a journalist, a promise that I quickly broke. <laughs> but that was fine, because the, the person who, who who ruled the camp at the time we ran it was a crook. So I have no no regrets about that. Anyway, my very second day in, in, in Samos, I was in a shop buying a map and I heard a young man ordering, asking for something in English very politely. And I turned and I could see he wasn't Greek. So I introduced myself um, and asked if I could take him for coffee and talk to him about what it was like living in the camp. And he couldn't do it that day, but we agreed to meet the next day. And that was Iyad. And we just hit it off right away. And he began to act as my fixer, as we say in journalism, which is he would find the other Syrians. He was Syrian, 
to um, bring to who were willing to talk to me, and he would bring them to me. We'd meet for coffee, and um, and he would be my translator. Uh, my initial approach was: I, I've trained a lot about interviewing traumatized people. I've had a lot of experience doing it. I've written a lot of books about survivors of rape and violence, domestic violence. So I didn't want to ask people why they had left, what they'd been through, what their experiences of refugees and or being in the wars or anything like that. I was initially interested in how on earth do you get through day by day in this horrible camp, which is like a slum inside a prison with no running water most of the time. Many people, there were thousands of people in the camp built for just a few hundred are uh, spilling out all over the surrounding olive groves, living in tents or homemade shelters with no sanitation, no electricity, no access to fresh food, no protection, no security, horrible conditions, families, children, women alone, <clears throat> LGBTQ people are very vulnerable, also no protection. So, and, and people really wanted to talk about that because they'd come to Europe believing that they're, you know, they would meet with some dignity and human right, a belief in human rights, what Europe is supposed to be famous for, what the West is supposed to be famous for, and instead they were being treated with the, the exact opposite way. They were being insulted and ordered around and being, and being kept in this slum with, with no access to education or jobs or anything. So they were quite angry about that and very disillusioned and shocked and frightened and that's what they wanted to talk about. So that's how it started off. Um, Could, uh, wait, I just yeah. have a question about that. That, that surprises yeah. me that they thought the West was the font of human rights, given what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. What do you explain about that? Because it seems to me that it, the, the West clearly doesn't care about human rights. It, it clears about power and hegemony and mostly for its elites. So where do you think that perspective came from? Hollywood. People, every, all over the world, people watch American movies. They listen to, you know, watch American TV and listen to American pop music. And they get this sense of freedom. Still, it, it is still a very deeply held belief through most of the world that this, you know, that the U.S. in particular, but also Europe, are um, bastions of human rights compared to where they live. And um, I will say they were more disillusioned about the U.S. than, the, than the Europe. Like I hardly met anybody who dreamt about coming here anymore. Canada, yes, but not, not to the U.S. But they did want to go to Germany or the Netherlands or France or the U.K., where they felt they had a chance to live decently. So there was a lot of disillusionment about the U.S., but nonetheless, not among everyone. You know, I'm generalizing. Um, so I did begin to write articles because I was so shocked by what I saw and so moved by it. Um, and I did write the novel, which is coming out, but I also felt it was really important to tell the true stories. And so did Iyad. And we didn't, though, we didn't really come across up with the idea of this book until the pandemic. It's all the fault of COVID, actually, because I was going back over and over again and interviewing people and meeting people and researching, but mostly still for the novel. And then I had a plan to go back again with Iad as my translator, and we were going to go all around Greece to all the most remote camps, because there's a whole philosophy there of you stick people out of sight and out of mind, you know, in remote camps near the Macedonian border or in the north or on these obscure islands, and interview them. And I, ha I was all packed and ready to go, and this was March 2020, and we all remember what happened then. Suddenly the borders came down and travel bans and so on, and I realized if I went, I probably wouldn't be able to come back. But Iad was there. So then I hit on the idea of, look, Iad, you interview people in Arabic, who you can meet in person there, and I will interview people over WhatsApp who speak English or French who are in the camps. And we will work as co-authors, because by that time I'd seen that he's a gifted interviewer and a beautiful writer, so I, I knew that I could trust him. 
um, and rely on him. And that's how he came about doing it. And then the most important question is why did we choose um, the format we did, which is people telling their own stories in their own words, largely. And this was a lot to do with wanting to allow people the dignity that the whole asylum process takes away from them. Um, you know, the only chance they get to tell their stories is either to each other or to, or to asylum officials whose entire motive is to try and catch them out in a lie so that they can deny them asylum. So to meet people who say, who, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to be non-judgmental and I want you to tell your story in your own words instead of saying what you think I want to hear and I'm not going to be the typical white Western reporter telling your story for you. Um, and Iad felt that was really important too. And all the people in the book really were excited by this. They finally felt like somebody's going to listen to me properly. So this is really interesting to me because this is basically the problem of anthropology, which is an inevitably colonial relationship. Because regardless of how one approaches it, someone is from the global north, someone has a place to return to, and someone doesn't. Someone's in a refugee camp. So I was just wondering if you could talk about how you dealt with that as a, as a journalist and, and, and as a fiction writer, because you are in a position of power no matter what. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you could reflect on that to me, that's that's very interesting because this is the problem that anthropology finds itself in. It's by definition colonial. It can't right. not be given power relationships in the world. So that's just a, a very compelling subject to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yes, uh, and indeed I'm actually the daughter of an anthropologist, so I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I was very aware of that. So I that's why I decided that I was going to buck some of the usual um, journalistic approaches and say, look, I'm not here to trip you up. I'm going to fact check because I have to, but we can do that together. I'm not here to, to, to try and trap you into saying anything you don't want to say. I'm here to listen with complete, with humility and respect. So that was the one thing, which is letting them tell their own stories in their own words. The other is, we did not want to pigeonhole the people just as refugees, just in their experience, the trauma of being turned into a refugee and what they underwent as refugees. Again, something that journalists and anthropologists might tend to do. We wanted to give the whole span of their lives. As Iyad says, our lives did not begin at the borders of Europe. We had whole lives before that. So instead of having a mass of people who just talked about their trauma, the way so many other books have done, we decided just to have five people and give them three chapters each. And the first chapter would be about their home lives and everything that mattered to them at home before terrible things started to happen. You know, their, their families, their, their love lives, their, their cooking, their hobbies, their dreams, their education, whatever was important to them. And then the second chapter is their flight, and the third chapter is what happened to them once they reached Greece. This was terribly important to our sources as well, because they the reason they wanted to be in the book is because they wanted to push back against the prejudices and lies, you know, that are being that are out there about refugees. And they felt very strongly that the only way they could do this was to show themselves in their full humanity as people as they kept saying, we're just like you, we're just like you. And this is the way we can show it, our whole stories. You can read about what kind of food I like. You can read about when my heart was broken. You can read about how much I miss my children, just like you. And um, <clears throat> this was, so, so what it, so it became a kind of partnership. And that was the closest I could get to avoiding the colonial role with the understanding, you know, that I had the power to give them a format for their to tell their stories that they didn't have the power to to get for themselves because of their position at the moment anyway in life. Can we talk a bit about that type of humanism? Because I feel like this is something that I've I've seen 
you know, I, I study the 30s and 40s and 50s and, and when the Holocaust becomes a thing in the United States in the 60s and 70s, you get a lot of, you know, similar, like we're, we were just like you, like that's what Anne Frank is, right? She was mm-hmm. just like you and this could happen to you. And so just to take a little bit of a, a devil's advocate position, that type of humanism hasn't had much of an effect on how the West acts. So I'm just curious how, what, what you view your project as being in sort of the larger geopolitical world where policy elites really just don't care. Um, there's a there's a sort of NGO complex that, that does that sort of highlights particular stories. But like, what is the role of telling these humanistic stories in 2023 today? Um, I'd love to hear your reflections on that. Yeah. I can't promise that my book, I couldn't promise them or anybody else that my book will change a single mind. That's just realistic. However, it has done two things. It's moved a lot of people. It has opened some people's eyes. I've had feedback. I've had readers write in, and so has Ead, saying, I did not realize how hard it was. I did not realize you know, I had this, this idea about Muslims being really, really different from me. I don't feel that anymore. Um, now, admittedly, people who read this book are, are not are already prone to probably have their eyes opened, and people who don't want their eyes open wouldn't touch the book. Um, but the other thing it did is that it, um, it really, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding a bit braggy, but the people in the book, were extremely are extremely proud of the book and they feel like they've really done something important by telling their stories in a way that got published and that they hope will reach some people somewhere even if it's just other uh, even if it's other refugees who will feel less alone that kind of thing it's small but it's better than not doing anything i also want to say that at the at the back, we have a whole chapter about what should be done and what we can all do both, you know, both on a political and, and, and global level and also on an individual level so that it, the book doesn't leave people feeling just helpless and paralyzed. I want to talk about the folks that, that you spoke with. There are five stories um, that, that are highlighted in the book, but I know you spoke to many more people uh, beyond those five. Um, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Where were, where were they coming from? I think for, uh, you know, kind of, uh, the casual audience, people understand, you know, the, the, the places that have been in the news over the last 20 years, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the, the, there are, you know, it's sort of self-explanatory why people were displaced from those, those places and, uh, maybe looking to, to make a life somewhere else. But there were, People coming from other places and, and other conditions. What did you find as you spoke to people? Yes, yeah, so we've got two from Syria, uh, one from Afghanistan, one from Cameroon, and one from Nigeria. But when I first went to the camp in 2018, it was mostly Syrians, Afghans, and Iraqis. And by the time I went back even a year later or five months later, there were more and more people from different countries in Africa, Eritreans and the Congo in particular. It, it changes over the years, depending, of course, what's happening in the world and what conflicts arise. Somalia is another one. Um, the uh, young man from Nigeria uh, is gay, and he escaped because he was caught with his partner who was beaten to death, and he was wanted by the police because it's illegal to be gay in Nigeria, as it is in 70 other countries, 69 or 70 other countries around the world. Um, so there is quite a large propor- uh, portion of LGBTQ refugees in Greece who, who fled because they will be imprisoned, tortured, or executed in their home countries for being gay or lesbian, bi or trans. And they represent a unique group because, you know, they flee the country and they may find themselves with other refugees from the same country who are political refugees or there for different reasons, religious refugees, but who have the same homophobic ideas. So they get persecuted by their fellow refugees in the camp, just the way they were at home, no protections. 
So Evans's story is, you know, he was the son of a doctor and a restaurant owner, middle class, well-educated, but he had to flee for his life anyway and end up with nothing. He was trafficked on the way. He was, uh, went through really awful things. Um, and so it was important for me to have a chapter about his story and also, you know, to expand it, to explain to people about that side of things because we don't read about that very often. So that's one example. Um, and then uh, Calvin from Cameroon is a political refugee and he, you know, he was demonstrating against the dictator and he got arrested and tortured and over and over again and, and he was wanted by the police in a, so he couldn't live there anymore. And there are a lot of political refugees at the camp as well. So those are two examples. Um, then I met another young man who's not in the book for Mali, and he's a, he's a refugee from ethnic conflicts. He belongs to an ethnic group that's persecuted in Mali. And his whole entire family was killed. And he was the only one who survived. And he, he escaped. He was only 16 when he escaped and ended up in Greece. He was a remarkable young man because he grew up a shepherd. He'd never gone to school in his life. He was totally illiterate. And after six months in Greece, just going to a local NGO to classes, he learned to speak and read French and English and write in six months. (laughs) It's absolutely brilliant. So you just meet extraordinary people. I met extraordinary people. And then I have a chapter just specifically about women. Um, because the plight of women is, again, a unique set of circumstances. It's particularly dire, and I wanted to explain that. So there are a lot of different – that's more of a classic journalism chapter with lots of different people in it from different countries. I actually want to want to talk a little more detail about the, the specific perils that women face. But before we do that, you, you mentioned one of the responses that you've gotten to the book is people saying, I had no idea how difficult – the journey was. So before we get really further into the conditions in the camp and the bureaucracy and the, the roadblocks that are set up by the European, by the EU and, and by Greece, can you talk a little bit about some of the common themes that you found as, as people were making the, these trips? <clears throat> the role of human traffickers, the, the, the kind of perils that people faced uh, along the way? Right. Well, first, I think it really helps to try and actually imagine what it's like to leave your house, leave your home and your town and your neighbors and your friends and most of your family and put everything you can into one bag you can carry and flee for your life. And how dependent that makes you on, to use a cliche, the kindness of strangers. So the first people you throw yourself on their mercy would be... um, smugglers and you find out about smugglers from friends and then some of them are crooks and they extort all kinds of money from you and then abandon you some of them are rapists some of them are thugs and some of them keep their promises and do it and it's very hard to know which kind you'll get so you're constantly in danger the whole time you're traveling the smugglers tend to work in chains so they'll one smuggler will take you a certain amount of distance and then hand you to another smuggler, do the next one, and so on and so on, to get you across countries. You often have to walk for days and days on end. Uh, Marcel, the young Afghan woman in my book, who's only 21, when I met her, she said she walked for so many weeks that her feet swelled to twice their normal size. And her, her, she wore through two pairs of shoes, if you can imagine what that's like. They had to climb over mountains. Most people came from hot climates, so they didn't have clothes for snow or shoes for climbing mountains. And they were just doing it in sneakers or sandals or flip-flops and shorts through freezing conditions. People got frostbite. People lost toes. People died on the way. People got raped and robbed. Um, It is unbelievably, unbelievably harrowing. Evans talks at one point about having managed to get jump over a wall between Iran and Turkey and then crawling through what looked to him like desert uh, with nothing to eat or drink. 
feeling like he was going to die. And he was, he's very religious. He was praying. He's Christian. He was praying, please save me. I feel like Jesus in the desert. And then he saw a biscuit on the ground that somebody dropped. And he just, he ate it and it felt like manna from heaven. You know, there are moments like that. But you're constantly just asking strangers to have give you some food or just help, please help. And then you have to deal with suspicion and, and racism and um, xenophobia and whatever problems people have that you go through. So one of the things that Evans said, coming from Nigeria, he said, I've, I've traded homophobia for racism. So when he got to the white countries, then he, for the first time he experienced racism. Um, nobody cared that he was gay anymore, but they cared very much that he was black. Just a quick uh, question yeah. about this, because I know in the United States, persecution of your sexuality is a major reason that asylum se- seekers are granted asylum. Is that the same uh, in the EU? Theoretically, but you have to prove that you're gay. Right. Yeah, I know. And they, so, uh, right. So the tar- question yeah. The questions are very personally invasive, and that's very shocking for people. Um, I do know one young man from Sierra Leone, and they just flatly t- refused to believe that he was gay or any of his story, and he was denied asylum, even though he had you, can't, you could he had all the evidence you could want, but they did decided not to believe him. So it's not a guarantee, that's for sure, but um, it should be. Is you know it is one of the more protected categories. It's easier. It's probably easier to to get asylum as a gay person than it is as a woman who, who's the survivor of rape or. That's my understanding violence. in the U.S. It's like a particularly it's a it's a category that's particularly protected. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I yeah. Just to ask. Yeah. Again, it depends. It you can't really talk about the EU because every country has its own processes, and some are much better and kinder and more just than others. And it's not only each country has its own, but you know, even each asylum officer has their own prejudices and and proclivities. It's very inconsistent. One of the things we call for in our book is that all these processes be made consistent and transparent throughout. In Greece, it takes 10 times as long to get asylum as it might say in the Netherlands. You you have to wait for weeks, months, sometimes years between each stage of the process in Greece, whereas in, in other countries, they might do it in two weeks. And it's not just about money. It's, it's, about, it's about the will and the politics behind it and how friendly the country actually is to refugees. As a question, are countries that border Africa or quote-unquote border Africa, you know what I mean, the Mediterranean and the Middle East, do they have the most stringent and the further you get away from countries that are racialized in the European imagination, they are less stringent or you can't make a rule like that? No, I think it would be the other way around. It's easier to, to settle in a country na- na- neighboring yours. I mean, most most refugees in the world are, are, who've had to leave their countries aren't just displaced within them. Settle in a ne- neighboring country, you know, like Jordan. It's taken a lot of people, for example, from Syria and Afghanistan. Um, and you know, most refugees in the world live in the poorest countries in the world. The richest areas, Europe and us, have the least refugees. So we are the hardest to get into. Turkey has many more than, you know, than any European country has, even though Turkey is a terrible place to be a refugee in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what should happen when refugees get to the European Union. I mean, refugee rights, asylum seeker rights are sort of enshrined in uh, international law. There are things that are supposed to happen within the European Union. There's, you know, uh, kind of burden sharing and, and, you know, that that type of thing. In the, in the idealized case, before we get into the actual conditions that these people face and uh, what's actually going on, what is sort of the idealized version of how this process should work? Yeah. Well, firstly, the information given to an asylum seeker ought to be clear and consistent and, and easily accessed, though that is, doesn't happen. 
you know, there should be a way to immediately find out what exactly you have to do. First, you have this interview. You, you need to get, first you gather these papers. Then you get this person to help you. Then you have your first interview, you know, etc. And explain what each one is about. It's really not that difficult to do, <laughs> especially with technology these days. Everybody has WhatsApp. There should be a very easy way of finding this out on your phone. Everyone has a phone, almost everyone. Or they have a friend who has a phone. And then it should be the same everywhere, as I said. There shouldn't be all these tricks. There's a whole kind of underground network of, <clears throat> of people who offer their help, like legal help, consulting help, who are scammers, and they manage to get a lot of money out of refugees by saying, I can speed this up for you, or I can find you a lawyer. Should be made very clear to people that that's not needed. You should never need all that. So that's how it should be. And, you know, there are, because there are actual laws about this, everybody should just be made to conform to these laws in all the different countries within the EU or, in fact, everywhere. So, talk. I know you've already sort of talked to some degree about the, the conditions that you, you saw in the camps. But maybe you could go into a little more detail about what actually greets people on their arrival, not just the detention camps, but, you know, there are ways that authorities try to, to get around asylum laws to imprison people. Uh, right. the, the bureaucracy, you sort of alluded to, to how um, unnecessarily burdensome the process is made. There's the phenomenon of people even being pushed back to sea, which is just astonishing to me. Maybe we could start with that because yeah. uh, that is just outrageous. Yeah. Uh, but what are the what are the sorts of of things that that people encounter when they finally do get uh, to to Europe? Okay, I, I can walk us through that. But first, I want to say something. In a way, it really begins with language. The first thing that should be paid attention to is the use of subject of terms like illegal migrants, illegal entry, which we see everywhere. Um, even in the latest Biden announcement and, you know, about the new asylum procedures. When you are an asylum seeker, you are not illegal. You have an international human right to seek asylum and to enter any country to seek asylum in any way. So you are not illegal. But once you're called illegal, it kicks in all these other things, like being arrested the minute you arrive, being charged as a human trafficker, even though you're actually a refugee. So let me get specific and give you an example of, say, Hassan, the Syrian who opens the book. He gets to, after long struggles, escaping from, he was a prison, imprisoned and tortured by ISIS because he worked for the Free Syrian Army fighting against Assad. He got caught by ISIS because they were enemies too. He had to escape for his life. He gets to Izmir at the south, the southern border, <clears throat> the coast of, of um, Turkey, and he wants to take a boat so he can go to Europe and, and survive. But he has no money. So the smugglers say to him, I tell you what, we can't let you go for free, but if you agree to drive the boat for a bit, steer the boat, you know, you can go for free. So he says, okay. Uh, what happens anyway, you get onto one of these inflatable dinghies overloaded with people so that it's only an inch above the sea. Um, and then the, the smuggler jumps off and swims ashore and abandons everyone anyway, or they just push you ashore. So somebody has to steer the boat or you would all, you know, float around helplessly until you drown. So the refugees will often take turns steering the boat. However, as soon as you cross the border in the middle of the Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece and you're in Greek waters, it is illegal to steer a refugee boat. So you arrive. This is what happened to Hassan. He arrives. He finds himself, oh, you know, they take photographs of you, like in prison, you know, your mugshot. You hold a number in front of you, and then they write a number on your hand in black ink, which is creepily reminiscent of being tattooed in a concentration camp. And then they uh, drive you up to the camp. You've no idea where you're going. You can't see out the windows. You don't know what you're in for. And then as soon as he arrives, he's handcuffed and dragged off to prison, and he doesn't know why. Nobody explains to him. 
and um, he's he's accused of human trafficking. He's made to sign a con they start to beat him up. The police. He's made to sign a confession in Greek, which of course he can't read. Um, and then he has to report to the police every Monday for a year, and then he's put on trial as a human trafficker, facing seven to ten years in prison. So this is uh, that Greece has thousands of people in prison, uh, for thousands of refugees in prison who are accused of being smugglers. So that's an example of how you get greeted. Not everyone goes through that, but, you know, a lot do. What's the point of that cruelty? Well, there's a funny thing that we do. We're doing it in the UK too, which is we decide that the way to stop criminal smugglers is to persecute the refugees. <laughs> let's send the new UK, let's send the refugees to Rwanda to cut the business out for the smugglers. It's like saying I'm going to, you know, somebody's robbed your house, so I'll arrest the house owner instead of the, instead of the thief. It's that kind of illogical thing. Um, you know, that's, that's their justification, but what it is underneath is they want to make, it's the same thing as Trump used to say, um, if we make life really hell for you here, you won't want to come anymore. That's what it's really about, which, of course, shows no understanding that people aren't coming because they just feel like living in Greece or living in Europe. They are coming because if they stay at home, they'll die. What explains the attitude that, that refugees are coming to take away from a society rather than contribute to it? I mean, this all seems to be driven by just the idea that like, we have to make it as hard as possible for people to, to enter this wonderful paradise that we've built for ourselves because they're just going to detract from it. They're going to take away. Where does that, that attitude come from? I mean, I know racism obviously at the, the bottom is, is, uh, probably the, the foundational underpinning, but at a, at a more kind of discourse level, what, where does that, that sort of manifest with, you know, in terms of government policy and the discussions that go on around these policies? Yeah. Well, I think Islamophobia plays a big part of that too. Fear of the other, hostility towards the other, which does seem, you know, tribalism, which seems to be a bit quite deep in human beings, alas. Um, but it's also, it's been whipped up, especially since 9-11. It's, it's been whipped up by right-wing politicians everywhere to make us believe that refugees come and take our jobs and live off our live off our charity and bring their strange, awful ways and strange, awful religions, you know, to try and, and corrupt us. I mean, actually, the same thing was said about Jews when people didn't want Jewish refugees from the Holocaust. It's an old trope. Uh, you talk to any refugee, they're not going to say, I'm not coming to X country to replace you or take away your culture or even influence your culture. It never even crossed my mind to do any such thing. I'm coming to, I want to contribute. I want to integrate. I want to get a job. I want to work. I want to, I want to make a life here and, you know, free of the fear of bombs, torture and imprisonment and death. My co-author Iyad talks about this very passionately. It, to him, the idea that he would want to replace anybody's culture is, is, completely wacky and very insulting too so it's really it's based on um on lies uh actually it was an interesting study was done in germany to see how that great the great influx of refugees that happened in 2015 that affected the economy and yes it was expensive short term but long term the gdp actually went up in that country because it's an influx of workers who contribute to the, the country's wealth. And this is especially ironic in so many countries in Europe, which are losing population and losing workers and need people. So it, it's a benefit. It's in fact, just like immigrants, you know, how many studies have been done that show that immigrants actually help a society grow? Well, refugees are immigrants. Same thing. They bring their skills, their knowledge, and the incredible fortitude that they have shown and that they possess to even have got as far as they've gotten. Earlier, you mentioned uh, your chapter on women, which, as you say, is a little bit 
different from the rest of the book. It, it's a little more journalistic. It's interviews with a number of people. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to want to kind of get into this a little bit in a little bit more detail. The the sort of special, unique challenges that face women who attempt this journey and wind up uh, in the same places in the, these refugee camps, kind of struggling to uh, to get that get get that last get over that last hurdle. What what distinguishes their experience, or in your you know what has distinguished their experience in in the women that you've talked to? Yeah. Well, firstly huge percentage if not by the, uh, nearly all of the women once they reach uh the camp have already undergone a sexual violence either in the context of war at home or on the trip because especially if you're a woman alone <clears throat> you are targeted all along by smugglers soldiers police fellow refugees sometimes random men who see that you're vulnerable and rape you so most of them have arrived already having undergone that. And they find they arrive in the camp where there's no little to no protection for anybody who's gone through that. Um, when I was in the camp in Samos, there was one psychologist and one doctor for 3,000 people. And then it grew to 8,000, still only one psychologist and one doctor where sometimes MSF was there, they they had some therapy or another NGO would come in, but it was extremely hard to access any kind of help. Or either there was a, a small group of protected housing for women who had been raped and otherwise assaulted, <clears throat> but that was closed down by the Greek government and uh, kicking out NGOs and after the new government came in 2019 and so women had to move back into the camps, sometimes right next to the men who raped them. Uh, one woman said, the only protection I have is a padlock I keep on the zipper of my tent. If you live in a tent, how are you supposed to protect yourself? Where There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. And certain women alone might get targeted over and over. So it's really quite, it's really ghastly. And um, there's supposed to be special protections for children too. But at one point in the camp, there were a bunch of, of young girls living alone in a tent together, no protection. There were some for some, but it's all very serendipitous. And there's never enough people to really help to the extent that's needed. So it's just so dangerous and it's so re-traumatizing over and over again. It's hard to believe anybody gets through it and alive sometimes, but they do. Is there any discussion of the irony that the global north writ large is responsible for a lot of the conditions that cause people to leave their countries and then re-traumatizes them a thousand different ways the second they come to their borders? It just it is just such a disgusting atrocious, morally reprehensible phenomenon. I was wondering if anyone in the countries are actually talking about it. Yeah. Well, there's always, there are people talking about it, whether anyone's listening. I mean, any government, uh, any government that leans right depends more and more these days on anti-refugee, anti-immigrant rhetoric, as we see in our own Republican Party. That seems to be the key to whipping people up, you know, the nativism, the nationalism, the white supremacy. So when you've got a government aligning itself with that frame of mind, they're not going to listen to this and they're not going to, they're not going to accept any responsibility. But there are people pushing back and fighting it all the time and say, look, <clears throat> you know, the Ara Iraqis wouldn't be refugees if it weren't for us, for example. Um, colonialism in Africa, look what we, how we've messed it up. Look how we messed up in Syria. Look how much responsibility we have. Um, so there's always a, there's a push and pull about that. But there's certainly, I mean, if you, even if you were <clears throat> an Iraqi interpreter who worked for an American soldier and risked your family's life and your own life, it's, on, it's, it's so hard to get a visa to come here now even if you've done that much for us, and that puts you in a special privilege category which is supposed to help you. And that's an uphill struggle that can take years. So if you don't even have those connections, and all the Afghans we left behind 
who worked for us got nothing, no help. It is morally disgusting, there is no question about it, and it is a violation of all the promises we made you know, the 1951 Geneva Convention, that never again will we treat refugees the way we did Jews when we sent them back to their deaths. We must never do that again. So we enshrine so the refugees. It turns out it's just we'll never let the Jews get killed by the Germans in the 1930s and 1940s again. That's basically what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. And all we can do is keep talking about it and fighting because if we just sit back, it'll go and get worse. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's not just about Europe, about Greece. It's about us and our morality in the West. And if we're treating, if we're doing such a bad job now, what are we going to do with climate refugees? When, you know, when the numbers of people fleeing to survive multiply, we've got to get our systems more aligned and more fair. We can able to do it now in preparation for the future. We're going to have half the human race starving on our streets. The last year has, of course, brought a whole new refugee crisis in the form of the, the war in Ukraine. I'm curious what you've observed in terms of the treatment of Ukrainian war displaced versus the people that you were speaking with. Uh, and is, has the, have you seen a double standard uh, in the ways that the the European governments have have approached that crisis versus these other crises. Oh yes, <laughs> I just wrote an article about that. Shocking. Un- yeah, called "Unequal Mercy," which kind of says it all. Uh, it's not just; it's also here in the U.S. We don't see any Ukrainians being kept back in Mexico under Title Forty Two, do we? Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, of course, it's it's glaring. I mean, some of the very countries that were the most welcoming to Ukrainians are the ones who are persecuting refugees from the Middle East and Africa worse than anyone else. Um, the only good side of it is, and I can be specific about that if you're interested, but the good side of it is that it shows us what we can do for refugees if we have the will. Because the way the refugees from Ukraine were treated in, say, Greece or the UK or France or several other European countries is the way all refugees should be treated. And, I mean, let's take Greece again, since that's what I know the most about. Greece has been claiming for ages that the reason it's so terrible to refugees is because it can't afford to do any better. And then in the first three months after Putin invaded, 21,000 Ukrainians arrived in Greece in three months, right, <clears throat> which was more than all asylum seekers for the whole year of 2021. And they were suddenly, Greece was able to find hotels and houses for them, put the kids in school, give them job training, job opportunities, food, stamps, clothing. They, all the st- Meanwhile, the, when you become an official refugee in Greece, all support is taken away from you. You're evicted from subsidized housing. You're, you're not allowed free medical care. You're given nothing at all. You're kicked out in the street at the same time. So there you go. That's the difference. But it's a model. It shows we can do it. And we know it shows we actually know how to do it. So I think to sort of end the interview, and uh, people should definitely go out and pick up the book. Again, it's Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. Uh, go get it, read it, um, you know, internalize it. Uh, but for people who have not yet read the book, uh, you end with uh, sort of a call to action. A lot of it is policy recommendations, but there are some things that uh, you say that people can do to to, to help. What What would be... Uh, a few of the the big ones that you'd like people to take away and, and you know, if they're interested in, in doing more uh, right. ways that they can do that. Well, I have a list of places at the end you can donate to, you can volunteer for, you can teach children in a refugee camp or in a detention center in your backyard. They're all over America. You can, IRAP, which is a wonderful organization, the um, the International Refugee Assistant Project, assistance project, IRAP. They have a whole 
system you can sign up for to, to sponsor uh, refugees who come. You can meet them at the airport. You can bring them clothes. You can help find them a place to eat. Then you can even just have someone to dinner, have someone to tea if you live in a community where there are refugees. But you know what really touched me when I asked this question of the refugees in my book themselves? What, what have you found the most useful that people can do for you? And they said, just smile at us. Just be friendly. We meet with so much hostility every day. Just a friendly, welcoming face can change our whole outlook on life. That simple. Um, but do look up IRAP if you want to do more because it's very clear what you can do and how to do it and, what, and they will help you sign up and do find your ways. And there are others in here in this book. It's a very pretty cover. I have to show it off. <laughs> so is there time for me to read a, a little bit from one of the refugees' words at the end, which addresses what we're talking about, since I do have the book in their words. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this is in the voice of Marsal. She is the young Afghan I mentioned who had to flee the Taliban with her family. And I'll see if I can just find something. She says, Refugees are not bad people. Please stop hating us. Just put yourself in our place. How would you feel if you were insulted every day on the bus? Would you be patient? If you look, you see we are like you. Some people see refugees as homeless, nameless, unclean, uneducated, and criminal. Yes, we are homeless, but not hopeless. We are nameless, but not weak. If we are unclean, it's because we slept in the forest, streets, and tents, but we have clean hearts. If our crime is speaking up for our rights and freedom, yes, we are criminals. If you do not want to see any refugees or migrants, fine, but please do not insult us. Sometimes only one word or action from you can make us feel as if our whole life is a jail. My mom always tells me, just calling someone a donkey does not make them a donkey. Calling us bad and unclean does not make us bad and unclean. Being a refugee means you are strong. You passed through a difficult, dangerous journey and still you are alive. You have hope. You have goals and dreams. As my mom also says, when you find yourself in a bad situation, just remember this. After every dark night, a beautiful morning will come. I think that's a lovely place to, to end. Uh, Helen Benedict, again, thank you so much for coming on the program. The book uh, is Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. We'll have a link uh, to purchase it in the show description, and we will have uh, a link to IRAP uh, for people who are interested in, in doing more. Um, Helen, thank you again so much for coming on the program. Thank you both so much. Great questions. Great questions.